Thank you for listening to the Shanghai Community Fellowship Podcast. To find out more about the SCF community, listen to sermons, and upcoming events, visit us at shanghaifellowship.org. All right, well, welcome back to part two in this three-part series on marriage. So the series title, reminding all of us, uh, is a uh, marriage, a series for those who desire to be married and for those who are already married. Now, we took this from Ephesians chapter five, and uh, we had that read to us just a moment ago. Uh, And what we're doing is we're pulling out a couple of key statements from Ephesians chapter five, um, we last week we talked about submit to one another in reverence for Christ. I'll, I'll mention that in a few moments, uh, and then today we're going to be kind of zeroing and focusing in on how two become one and two become one body. Uh, a, a man will leave his father and mother; these two will leave their homes and become one and create a bond between the two of them. We're going to focus on that: how they become one. How a man and a woman become one in marriage. And then next week, as we wrap this up, Ruth will be here to talk about the very last verse, which is like a summary verse of all of chapter 5 of Ephesians, uh, verses 21 to 33, where Paul just kind of sums it up and says, kind of basically, therefore, you know, to say it all, uh, everything, I've all uh, everything I've just said, if I could sum it all up, you know, the bottom line would be that uh, wives should respect their husbands and husbands should uh, love their wives. And so anyway, Ruth is going to be talking about love and respect in marriage um, uh, next next week. So that's coming up in this, uh, what's turning out to be, I think, a pretty good, a pretty good series. Um, uh, now, uh, you know, I could have called today's message, uh, let's see, what I did give it a title, uh, How to Become One Body, It's Not What You Think, but I could have called this message, uh, The Gospel in Your House. Um, and that would have been that would have been appropriate. That would have been a good mess. That would have been, would have been a good title too. The gospel uh, in your house. Now, um, again, I, there are some things, some assumptions. I'm just making moving on to part two uh, that I would have said last week. Uh, so I'm not going to take the time because we're we're moving toward communion today. Uh, I'm not going to take the time. But but there are some things about what I'm saying and maybe the perspective that I'm coming from. Uh, as I interpret and uh, exegete and preach from these verses, that uh, if you're if if you're like something just doesn't register with you, uh, you know, well, I thought I'd heard something different. You might want to go back and look at part one on the YouTube channel, uh, and that can help you uh, give some context for not only what I'm saying, but maybe why I'm I'm saying it. All right, Joe, let's just dive in for today. All right, I believe that this whole passage on uh, how we live together in the house, uh, at home, uh, especially now that we've all become Christians, and this is a this is a Christian house, uh, and this is a this is a home uh, where Christians now live. Um, that 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 whole segment of Ephesians five that describes what life is like now, now that we are Christians here, um, begins with verse number 21. Actually, you might even say it begins with verse number uh, 17. Um, but but definitely first, verse number 21, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ, is definitely a, a statement, submit to each other out of reverence for Christ, that's, that sums up what has been said starting in verse number 17, but also points to and and, and captures everything that's going to be said about the house and those who live in the house 
uh, starting with verse number 22, basically. Uh, and we're going to look at that a little more closely today. Uh, submit to each other. So, so that the Christian home is a place where people in that house are submitting to each other, and that includes husbands and wives. Now, now, as, as you read, uh, and we're going to read this again. I uh, just heard it read. We're going to read it again. As you read these verses, um, this household and this house that Paul is describing is a, is, a, is a unique and particular way to be a house or a household um, in the first century. Then, as now, there's more than one way uh, to play house. Now, I'm going to assume that this is a man and a woman who are married to each other or having been married uh, at one point in uh, their lives. In other words, there are children in the home because at one point this person was married. Uh, for example, uh, you might have a household where a woman who is a Christian is married to someone who is not a Christian. Uh, that wasn't that unusual in the first century as people were becoming Christians um, that one of the uh, partners became a Christian, but the other partner uh, did not. And so now you have this divided house. They, neither one of them are Christians when they married. One has now become a follower of Jesus and one is not. That's a, that's a particular kind of a household. Uh, you might have a household where there is a widow, where there, uh, she's a young widow and there are still uh, young children in her home. Uh, you might have a situation where you have a married couple who are both slaves in the same household. So they're married to each other, but the head of the house is not, is not in a sense, her husband. Um, uh, the head of the house is the, actually the owner of the villa. All right, so you've got that dynamic. You have a married couple, husband and wife, living as two slaves uh, in the same household. A first century scenario. Or you might have, you might have a married couple who uh, are not wealthy, they're, uh, they're poorer, you know, but they own a shop together in the marketplace. They own a, a, a dry goods store. They own a leather shop and they both work side by side. It's very, very next, very much next to each other, working side by side, doing life together with each other, uh, very much um, uh, as, as partners, right? Uh, you know, when you think about these, these, uh, these scenarios, the different kinds of households, um, it's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like I, what comes to my mind is, is that passage from, uh, from the Gospels where John is baptizing people and some of the different people are asking, you know, hey, now that I've been baptized, now that I have this baptism of repentance, what should I do? What, what? And so he, kinda, he says to the tax collectors, so people who were tax collectors said, you know, what should we do? And he, he gave some direction, right? And he said, and, and the soldiers said, you know, well, we've, we've, we've experienced this baptism of repentance now, what do we do? What, what, is, what does life look like for us now? Uh, we're still tax collectors and we're still soldiers, but we've just been baptized. How, how, are we, how are we now soldiers and tax collectors? And on and on and on it could go. And it's the same kind of dynamic. You know, we all lived here in this house. I'm the husband. This is the wife. These are the kids. These are the slaves in this household. Uh, I was the master, you know, and still am. Uh, but we have become Christians. This has become a Christian house. How does it look different? Uh, what does that mean for us exactly? Um, uh, of course, Paul is writing here in Ephesians 5 uh, to uh, a household that is a primarily a villa. Uh, and this is a, a wealthier household where uh, the man would have been 
like owner of his own business, you know, that household was not only a house where people lived, but there would have been a, a, a family business being run out of that house. So the man would have been the head of the business. He would have been a husband, of course, he would have been father, and he would have been the master of the slaves in that household. So that whole, that whole villa of uh, wealthier people, that's how what he, they would have been operating. And again, the question would be, how do we, what does life look like for us now? Because this has become a Christian household. Makes me think of something else Paul says, just to give us some insight. He says this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 and to 19. He says, to those of you who are wealthy in this world. In other words, he, he, he specifically addresses a certain kind of person. Not everybody is wealthy. Not everyone is going to have uh, these kinds of resources uh, accessible to them. But to those who do, same kind of dynamic. Paul is writing in Ephesians 5 to a householder, the head of the house, who's fairly wealthy. He has his own villa. He's running his own family business out of that villa. He's a husband. He's a father. He's a business owner. And he's the master of the house. So whatever the structure, okay, whatever the structure of your house, the widow with young kids, uh, a man and a wife, a husband and a wife working side by side in the marketplace, running their leather goods store, uh, whenever the structure of the house, the point is you are now to bring the gospel into your house. Whatever the roles look like, whatever, 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 that, whatever that looked like, you have become a follower of Jesus and the gospel has come in to your house. The gospel came home with you. I like something uh, historian Gordon Fee says here, God calls us to peace and he calls us to peace in our home, in our homes. He calls us to be filled with the Holy Spirit at home and with those who live with us. Um, and when we live together in the house, he calls us to submit to each other uh, in the house out of reverence for Christ. So whatever role we might have, we're the husband, we're the wife, we're the daughter, we're the son, whether we're wealthy villa owners or we're, this is a single parent home or, or, or we're two married full-time students, the point is be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit of God. And this becomes the starting place. This becomes a place where we begin when we talk about married life uh, in the house and in the home with each other. So let's keep reading. Verse number 22 said, and still says, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, here, right now, Paul is going to introduce a metaphor, a very strong metaphor, for both husbands and wives as they submit to each other. Both husbands and wives are going to follow the relationship with Jesus Christ. Follow Jesus. Whether you're a husband or whether you're a wife, follow Jesus, right? Now, he says this as the head of the house to, uh, to the husband, as the head of the house, he says to the wife, you should yield or submit. Now, last week we talked about the definition of submission. Now, I'm not going to go over that today. You're going to have to go back there. But I can just tell you it doesn't, ne doesn't necessarily mean obey. Rarely means obey. It means something else. Paul's going to define that something else in the last verse when he talks about wives respecting. It has something to do with respect, okay? But enough about that last week and next week. That'll fill that in. 
But I want to say here that if you've seen this passage before, when it says that the husband is the head, um, one way to understand head is authority, like the boss, right? But that's actually a not so common way to understand the word, the Greek word head. I'm going to tell you where I'm coming from. A more common way to understand the meaning of the word head is the word source. Like the head of a river is up in the mountains. The mouth of the river empties into the China, South China Sea, right? All right, so the source is the husband, as Christ is the source. Again, today, we're not going to unpack in detail what source means and all that Paul is implying when he says that Christ is the source of the church and the husband is the source of the wife, simply to say that there are two roles, both husband and wife, and however uh, uh, they are However, they are called to submit to each other, and Christ is that standard for that kind of submission. So, uh, now, just like if I'm in a counseling situation and a couple uh, is in my office to see me, uh, the husband and wife, the wife and the husband, um, you know, there, there are going to be times, in although this is a couple's counseling session, there are going to be times where I'm going to look to the wife and I'll speak directly to her. There were times when I'm going to look at the husband, I'm going to speak directly to him. So in the same session, I will speak to both people separately, while the other one kind of basically listens in. So that's what's happening here. You know, Paul is speaking, the Holy Spirit is speaking to wives. Now he turns and he looks at the husband and says, now I'm going to talk to you. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, as their own bodies. We're going to come back to that. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, Paul writes, but I am talking about the Christ and the church. However, last verse, summary verse, however, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right, so last verse, that's Ruth's part next week where she talks about love and respect. Verse number 25 and 26 talks about a definition or a metaphor for how a husband loves his wife. Remember said Christ becomes the standard for both the husband and wife. Now, again, I'm not going to go into verse number 25. I'm going to push that into next week, all right? What I do want to do here um, uh, is I want to... I want to turn toward uh, something that is happening and, and point out that as Paul is talking, like a good marriage counselor, he's talked to the wife. Uh, now with her present, he's going to turn and talk to the husband. And, and he says, you know, you need to love your wife. And, and, uh, and as, as Christ loved the church. And then he introduces this. He introduces a concept that he's going to continue to unpack. He said, as as your own body. Basically, you need to love your wife as you would love your own body, as you would care for, be interested in your own body. Now, he's going to keep pushing that metaphor 
because there's a shift that's starting to take place because he's going to shift and move us uh, not just from this mutual submission, which of course is valuable. We started with that, but he's going to move us to the place where he describes that, that, that new thing that has been accomplished in Christ between the two of you, where the two of you have become one body. Two have become one. And the crescendo for that is when he actually just quotes Genesis chapter 2, where we read, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Like, boom, drop the mic. That's it. That's the statement. You know, um, for this reason, a man leaves his father and mother, both men and women leave their parental homes and they will be bound together creating a new home and they will be bound together as husband and wife united as one flesh or one body boom drop the mic all right so what i want us to see is that this this uh exhortation this teaching this direction um begins with a leaving all right begins with a leaving that husbands and wives become one when they leave, all right? When they leave their parental homes. Now, home can be a literal place, of course, but more often it's not like literally leaving the place where you live. Sometimes it is. Sometimes sometimes a, 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 a man or a woman who is single and now is going to be married has been living with, literally living with his parents or her parents, and now they're going to literally live their parents. So many times today in many cultures, uh, some cultures, that's exactly what it looks like. But in some cultures, you know, uh, a, a young man or a young woman has left home. They have their own apartment. They have their own flat. All right, so you don't, we don't mean literally leave the, the, the house, right? Um, uh, but for most of us, uh, uh, parents will be to us a spiritual and emotional home long after we have left the physical home. So whether that's our parents, both mother and father, or a stepfather or a stepmother, or one parent or grandparents, someone or someone uh, uh, that fills that parental role in your life, it's leaving that spiritual and emotional home to be bound to and then create one home and one body with your partner, with this woman, with, with this man. You know, um, I like I like the way the Lees, uh, Nikki and Scylla Lee described this, that, that, you know, as small children, the emotional and spiritual center of our homes, and they called it center of gravity, is our parents. You know, the people that gave birth to us, the people that, that were raising us as children. That might have been grandparents. It might have been an uncle and aunt, but, or, but uh, that, that, that was the center of our gravity. When you were two years old, when you were four years old, the center of your world were those people who were raising you, feeding you, caring for you, changing your diaper, you know. And as we grow as children, the, 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 the circle begins to widen, right? We, have, we go to school, we have friends at school. Our, our circle now includes our teachers and our friends. And then it just widens and widens and widens. But the center of gravity for most of us will always remain home that parent or parental influence that was the center of our lives, of our spiritual lives, of our emotional lives. We come back there again and again and again. When we get married, 
the center of gravity must shift as we leave our sometimes physically but emotional and spiritual homes to create a new home with our spouse that's the leaving and the center of gravity shifts away from our parents and those who had that role in our lives to our spouse my spouse and i have created our own center of gravity and our parents are within that circle of influence and concern, but the new center has been created with our spouse. Now, now that says, oh yeah, sure, 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 I got that. I know I know that, but to tell you the truth, in real life, this isn't always easy, and it doesn't always happen. A partner doesn't leave home. Oh no, they, of course they don't so go home and sleep in their bedroom from high school, but, but emotionally and spiritually, the center of their lives is still a parent. It's still their mother. It's, it's still their father. Uh, they, they don't leave home. Or, and this is equally tragic, the parent can't let go of the child. And so I've seen this. Uh, parents become emotionally, uh, spiritually dependent on their children in a way that they can't let them go. And sadly, sometimes parents will even actually undermine their children's marriages because they cannot, they cannot tolerate the shift that must happen when their child leaves and that center of gravity emotionally and spiritually moves to their partner, to their spouse. I like something that Bruce Waltke says here. He says, when we read in the Bible, Genesis 2, Genesis 2 Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father, for that phrase, for this reason, what it does, that phrase now is giving us God's explanation. That phrase, for this reason, creates a statement that, that we have been looking to and will continue to look to because we are getting God's perspective and explanation for how two people come together to form one body. In other words, the leaving and the bonding together, that's a God thing. It's not just a good idea. It's not that, hey, why don't we just start living together? Or, or how, why, don't we just start, why don't we just get married? Why don't we, why don't we create a, a home together, a new emotional and spiritual center of gravity for you and for me? And we'll do that together. That's just not a good idea. That's a God idea. And that's not a God-anointed, God-appointed, and Spirit-led thing. Uh, it, it should be a reminder to us that marriage is not our idea. It's God's idea. We don't own, none of us owns marriage. Marriage was discovered. It, it's, it's like mathematics. We don't, we don't create math, we discover math. We don't create marriage, we discover marriage. God's got the copyright on marriage. It's why, I, I believe, and I've always felt this way, that Every marriage, whether this person is a Christian or not a Christian, marriage itself is sacred because it is God's idea. So, of course, here we go. He said that they'll leave and the two will become one body. That's how he said it. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Then he says this. This is a profound mystery but I'm talking about Christ in the church. And you probably already noticed in this passage, Ephesians 5, 17 or 21 to 33, Paul's going back and forth. You know, he's kind of, he's alluding to Jesus and the church and the body of Christ. And he, Jesus is the head and his people, his new community are the body. Jesus is the bridegroom and we are the bride. There's this a metaphor going back and forth. And Paul is kind of 
over here with talking about Jesus and the church, and he's over here talking about married, real married couples as partners, and he's back over talking. So he acknowledges that there's this back and forth that's been going on. All right, but we're today talking specifically, focusing on the marriage between a man and a woman. They will leave parents and they will become one, one body, one flesh. Now, okay, hey, it, it, it doesn't take a, a, a lot of imagination to see how sexual intimacy uh, make a man and a woman one. Okay, we got that. Uh, we, we understood that. We, we, we attended uh, eighth grade health class and they explained that to us. All right, so it doesn't take, but, but what about the other uh, hours of the day? What about the other days of the week? I, you know, are, are they not one then? Are they only one? Are this man and woman only one during sexual intimacy? But, but you know, the other days of the week, the other hours of the day, they're, they're not. Uh, no one would, would say that. Of course, they're, they're still one. So, of course, and obviously, the sexual intimacy, uh, we understand how that creates uh, one body, uh, it, it, to, to say it uh, literally. But a husband and wife are still one uh, 24-7, seven days a week. Uh, all the weeks of the year, right? There's, there's still one. So what does that look like? Um, uh, this new relationship of being one uh, uh, with, with, with a man, if you're a woman, or being one with a woman, if you're a man, uh, is describing something more than sexual intimacy. It's, it's kind of like uh, the wearing of, the, I'm wearing a wedding ring, right? And this ring on my hand is a symbol uh, that I'm a married person, that I am married. All right. Now we wouldn't think that. Oh, if I if I take this wedding band off, I'm not married. Put it on. Oh, I'm married now. Take it off. I'm not married. Put it on. I'm married. We wouldn't say that. We understand that this is a a way to show and signify that a person is in a marriage covenant, but it doesn't create that marriage covenant. And that marriage covenant is so much more than just the ring on this finger, okay? And that's what's going on here. It's so much more, it's something new, it's something us, and it's something exclusive. Let me spend a few moments on each one of those. A marriage bond to, to, to a man and a woman uh, coming together uh, to create this, this one body experience is something new. Uh, Paul would say, and his argument was, we should understand what self-interest is like, you know, because we all have a, an interest in our own body. We all have an interest in taking care of ourselves. When we're hungry, we make sure that we get something to eat. When we are cold, we make sure that we find some way to warm ourselves. Uh, we teach our children how to take care of themselves, right? We teach them to brush their teeth. We teach them something about nutrition and good foods to eat and foods to stay away from. No, you can't eat uh, candy for supper, for dinner. You're going to have, to have to eat some proper nutritious food. We teach them about eye care. We teach them about rest so that they don't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we teach them don't look directly into the sun. What are we doing? We're, we teach our children self-interest. And self-interest is not selfishness. There's something new that's being created in this covenant of marriage where two people become one body, one flesh. It was where once my self-interest was only limited to me, myself. 
now is expanded because I have been expanded, that two people now capture my self-interest as a husband and as a wife. Self-interest is not the same thing as selfishness. Something new, something us. I, I remember uh, a story from the uh, marriage prep course, the first version of it. Um, uh, what, I, I just, it just captured my attention maybe because uh, I went to Ikea for the first time when I was living here in Shanghai. This couple uh, described, uh, they're newly married and they realized they were gonna have to replace some of their uh, kitchen furniture. And, um, you know, and he uh, never, never really had this conversation during the times that they were dating, uh, but, but now they're married and, and she's finding out that he feels very strongly about modern and contemporary kitchen design. He wants lots of chrome, all right? Uh, he's finding out that she's in love with antique, you know, just, just anything old, antique, you know, old school, loves that. Can't imagine a kitchen that would look like anything other than an antiqued look. And of course, you know, they go to Ikea to find some of this uh, cabinetry and uh, kitchen furniture, and he's pointing out things that he likes, and she's like, oh, oh no way, oh, no, oh. you know. He's, she's pointing out things that she likes. He's like, I could never live with that. You know, and they're back and forth and back and forth. And here's what they said. You know, it became really clear because smart people that, um, you know, we're not going to, uh, one of us is not going to be happy uh, with if, if the one of us picks, right? And so we're coming along and we find this antique white kitchen cabinetry and furniture. And we both said, as they shared the story, I love that. That's perfect. It had elements of modern contemporary with elements of the antique look. And they both agreed. Here's what she said. She said, we found something us. We found something us. Practically speaking, uh, as husbands and wives living together, us must become greater than me. Now, I don't lose my identity and you don't lose your identity when you become a married person in a marriage covenant. You're, you're like two, two circles overlapping. There's a place where we will become us, but I continue to remain me. My partner continues to remain themselves, but we must become us. It doesn't mean we lose uh, our distinctions. It doesn't mean we lose our roles and that those roles may shift over time. Uh, who cleans the dishes and who prepares the food, all of that uh, may shift over time. It doesn't mean that we become gender neutral in some, in some way. Uh, uh, the, the man and the woman, the male and the female, actually remain male and female as they live together to form one flesh. It's amazing. Uh, it's absolutely amazing. The new element that is being introduced in this Genesis chapter 2 passage, verse number 24, and then repeated again in, uh, in Ephesians chapter 5, as, as it reflects the dynamic that is happening between Christ and the church. What's amazing is that Jesus and his new community have become one. The unity between me and Jesus is amazing. That wasn't there before. There was just Jesus. And it was just me. And then we came together as his community, as his bride, as his body. And we have become we, a new thing, a new expression of God on the earth. You and your partner have shifted from me to us. And that's new. That's something new. And that's something us. 
Whatever affects me affects my partner. Whatever affects my partner affects me. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be. Something new, something us, and something exclusive. In marriage, I love you go back to Genesis 2, and, and you get this picture of, of like this pure, pure, the purity of the relationship between these two characters called Adam and Eve. Again, back to Walt, he, he points out that, that the narrator in Genesis has already told us that the name of the man is Adam, which is related to the ground. But what we find in Genesis chapter 2 is that when he meets his wife, he gives himself a new name, and his new name will be in relationship to her. There's a shift that's happening as they become one and relate to one another and identify themselves in relationship to each other. There's also no shame. There's also complete trust and vulnerability. And, and what I love about Genesis 2 is that it, it shows us a picture of what it's supposed to be and what it's supposed to look like. Jesus talked at another point where he talked to the, to the Pharisees and leaders and, and they said, yeah, but, but didn't Moses give us a, divorce, a certificate of divorce? You know, if it doesn't work out, we can always split up, right? Isn't that, isn't that a good thing? And Jesus talked about the hardness of heart, the hardness of heart. And just simply pointing us to this, the, the purity and the, the, the goodness and the rightness of, of, of what marriage could be and what it could look like. At least nothing else gives us a, an image of what we're shooting for, all right? It's something new, it's something us, and it's something exclusive that we only share with each other as marriage partners in this covenant of marriage and in the bond that we share. I, I can tell you this story because it's, uh, and, 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 and know that the story has been repeated uh, many, many times. Um, it's not unusual. You know, a partner has invited another person into the intimacy of that sacred bond and that sacred covenant. He says, she says, oh, you know, this is so, uh, gosh, I was, I've heard this sadly more than once. He said, but, you know, I love him. I, I, love, I love both of you, he'll say. I love both of you, she'll say. I don't know what I'm going to do, she says. I, I, I love both of you. Uh, you. You can't love two people in this way, as a husband or as a wife. It's in a mutually exclusive bond and marriage covenant. I'm in love with both of you, he said. Somebody should have told him or her, stop. Stop being in love with two people and start being in love with the person that you are married to, that you have a one flesh, one body relationship with. This unity, this united in marriage, this bond, this covenant of love, of it, it, it just shines this light on what's going on with God and with us, God's relationship with us, his people. Back to something Gordon Fee says, and we're going to kind of move toward communion at this point uh, in the table of the Lord. Um, Fee, Fee makes the point that what was, what was so radically new about Christianity uh, was the way it gathered people uh, around the same table. The way it gathered people who would normally not share a meal together it wouldn't be allowed. This person never eats at the same table with that person. It never happens. 
But Christianity came and opened up the seats at the table so that everyone could come. And, and you saw that playing itself out in this house. So men and women and children and slaves and household manager and auntie and uncle all came together and sat at table together. They'd never seen that before. That's what changed. The gospel came into this house and we were filled with the spirit and then we all sat down at the same table together and we ate together. Everything changed. Everything was new. Everything is different. We, in a moment, will be moving toward this same table. It's, it's a table that we celebrate. We've been celebrating and coming to this table, the table of the Lord for the last 2,000 years. For as often as we gather together around this table, we remember that Christ has come and the gospel has been proclaimed, the good news that set us free, that when we heard about Jesus, that we are now part of a new community that, that, that he has created. And that new community is united with him. And we see it every day in the unity of the love between mom and dad, between our parents, between my spouse, my partner, and me. We see that love in this house. And we see that same spirit in this house, whatever that house might look like. Because the gospel has come into this home. Because we are filled with the Spirit, we will sit down at this table together and remember Jesus.